Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. To become a supporter of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. All right, welcome, everybody. This is a big week. We're reading Yitro. Exodus chapters 18 through 20, which tell the story, of course, of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. This is such a central, such an important, such a foundational Jewish story that we have an entire holiday built around it, the holiday of Shavuot, and in many ways all the rest of our holidays as well, because of course Torah sits at the center of Judaism. I'm lucky to be able to talk about this Torah portion today with Rabbi Dr. Dahlia Marks. Rabbi Marks is a professor of liturgy and midrash at Hebrew Union College, the Reform Seminary in Jerusalem. So she teaches rabbis about prayer and rabbinic literature. I'll introduce her more fully and we'll get to know her in the course of the episode. But she's also the author of a wonderful new volume from the CCAR Press, The Reform Movement, which is called From Time to Time, Journeys in the Jewish Calendar. For those who haven't heard a lot of these interview episodes, we will talk about the Torah portion for about the first seven to ten minutes, like we always do, and then we'll take a short break and continue the conversation. In this case, we'll talk about the calendar, about Jewish time, and also about the importance of finding and recapturing voices that have been excluded from the transmission of our tradition. So here's my conversation with Rabbi Dahlia Marks. Rabbi Dahlia Marks, welcome to 7-Minute Torah. Thank you for having me, Rabbi Streifer. It's a pleasure. I'm thrilled to be able to, to talk with you today. I have to first ask you, you're joining us from Jerusalem today. How are you and your family holding up during this, this challenging time? We Personally, we're fine, but this is, a, this is a very challenging time. You know, every time I make myself a cup of tea or go to bed or do, you know, one of these very simple, routine, mundane thing. I think about all the people who are not in their homes, who cannot do that, and who, you know, waiting to go back home, and, and not not even to mention the hostages, which is um, a thing unto itself that it's always on our heart. You can see here, our, our listeners can't, but I have this uh, tag that we and I and many of us wear every day to remind us that we have to bring back um, these people home. Well, I know that, you know, many of us are hoping and praying for a a speedy end to the situation very soon. Um, So we're going to get to know you a little better in the second part of our discussion. You are a professor of liturgy and midrash at Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem, my alma mater, although not the same campus where I was ordained. And if it's okay with you, let's just start off by talking about the parasha. Yes, this is a, a very special parasha, a very dramatic one, very central one, parasha titro, where we stand at Sinai, all of us together. This is a tremendous and unique, uh, even cosmic event when God speaks to the entirety of the people of Israel 
um, and and give us the Torah. Yeah, so this is a very, very dramatic moment. We read in Exodus 19, verse 11, Let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Eternal shall come down in the sight of all people on Mount Sinai. Everybody is, is present when God reveals God's, God's self to us. And according to the Midrash, birds don't tweet and dogs don't bark and all, 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 the angels don't speak. You know, the whole world, it's a very universal experience. And then a few verses down, we read, Be ready for, three day, for the third day, you know, prepare yourself. And you should not go near a woman. Yeah, so we have this, we have this funny tension, as, as you point out. The Torah makes quite a big deal of this being a universal experience, right? Everybody's standing, and Judaism makes a big deal. We all stood at Sinai, not only those who were there, but all of us who came after, those who were born Jewish, those who converted, those who were descended from the Israelites, and in some way, all of creation is standing together. At Sinai, I was actually just reading a midrash um, this morning before coming into our program that where God says to creation on the sixth day of creation, if the Torah is accepted, you will exist. And if not, you will return to Tohu Bavohu. So there's right. some kind of sense where all of creation is standing together in this moment. It, it was a moment of awe to everyone and to everybody, not only to for humans, also to animals, to angels. Um, and as you pointed out, also future generations. And there's a beautiful Midrash that says that even the souls of those who will join us, the Jews by choice, the converted, the, the people who convert to Judaism will also be present with us. So this is a very unique moment in that sense. And then a few verses down the line, we read uh, something that kind of puts all of what we said in a, it qualifies it in a, in a strange way. It says, be ready, be prepared. Do not go near a woman. Do, do not approach a woman. So all of a sudden, am I asking myself, I thought God was talking to all of us. And now I understand that God was only talking to the men. They doesn't say men and people don't, don't have, uh, I, I can understand that, that maybe this is not the, uh, an appropriate time for people to, in, to be engaged in sexual relationship and then love relationship. I understand that. But it doesn't say don't go near each other, don't be engaged in marital relationship this time. It speaks to the men. The women are as, as if they're not even present there. And of course, you know, we have this uh, very important and defining book by Judith Plasco, uh, Standing Again at Sinai. And she, she, was, she was pointing it to us. Maybe we read it so many times and we didn't see this, this uh, perspective that excludes women from the conversation. Yeah, I was actually also thinking about standing again at Sinai as you were saying this, because one of Dr. Plaskow's very important points is that certain voices have been missing from the discussion from the very beginning. When we read the Torah, when we read rabbinic literature, we're reading almost entirely men's perspective. Sometimes they talk about women, but we, we are missing the voices of half of the Jewish people throughout history. Exactly. But in this case, this is actually something that I found interesting. Uh, the Midrash is in a way correcting this uh, perspective because we read in the Midrash uh, Shmot Rabbah and it, it, uh, it uh, goes back to this verse that says, 
כה תאמר לבית יעקב ותגד לבני ישראל. So you shall, you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the children of Israel. And he said, why do you have to repeat it twice? Why do you have to say the house of Jacob and then the children of Israel? And then he says, the house of Jacob are the women. These are the women. And <laughs> Bnei Israel are the men. And in a way, the Midrash sort of redeems or, or provides a perspective that also women were addressed by God. It's not in the Torah, but the, the, the Midrash is telling us that. And you know, we know that Beit Israel was later became uh, the, the education system for women uh, by Hannah, by Sarah Schneerer. Yeah? Today we can think about, well, the, it's an ultra-Orthodox uh, chain of organizations. Today we may think about it as very traditional or very conservative, but back in the day it was a, a revolutionary institution you know having women get Jewish education that's very interesting so do you think the rabbis are disturbed by the the notion that the women weren't also present is that why they're looking to correct this story in that way it seems like it and then they give four different explanations why why you had to have the separation not all of the explanations are very kind to women I have to say but uh, but but it, it does mention women and in, in fact it mentions women before men and it says this midrash it says we mention the women first because women take care of the are there those who normally take care of the education of the children so we have to make sure they are on board right yeah so in that sense the midrash is participating in this project that I know is close to your heart. of recapturing voices that are missing from the Torah, of trying to see the perspective that maybe is hidden underneath the surface of what's in the Torah. Who wasn't, who was there that we don't hear from? Whose voice or perspective also matters, but that is not necessarily floating to the, to the surface automatically? Right. I would say we have two, two main tasks in that, in that regard, what you were talking about. First of all, we have to identify these voices These voices these invisible people um, that we have in our tradition and we have to give them voice and second it is our job to create a new layer of, of Judaism which includes everyone which is which sees uh, all those who were invisible or are unheard all those who were silenced I think that's that's the task of our generation um and Of course include the inclusion of women uh, I would say goes without saying but also included including Jews of color uh, LGBTQ uh, people so the, the to to give presence to the people that we we haven't uh, seen so much before yeah the the classic example that pops into my mind is Anita Diamond's novel the red tent mm. which attempts to tell what we think of as being the story of Jacob but to tell it from the perspective of Dina Dina of course is a I don't want to call her a minor character she matters a lot in the Torah but we only have really one story about Dina and we don't really get her perspective and so I mean novel is now 30 years old but Anita Diamond attempts to retell the story from the perspective of the person who whose perspective we don't get and I know that since the That novel was published and over the last 30 years there's been quite a lot of work fiction nonfiction poetry um, new creation of Midrash trying to as you say first figure out who is missing and then to fill in the the voices of the people that are missing either to 
try to piece together what might they have experienced or to make sure that their voices are being heard today as well. Exactly. And I think what, what Anita Diamond does in the Red Tent is to give voice to Dina, who's a tragic uh, figure in our tradition, right? Uh, we don't exactly know what happens there in Genesis uh, 34, right? Was she raped by uh, by the landlord of, uh, of Shechem or did she, did she have a love affair with him? As Anita Diamant uh, argues, uh, I think it's a more thought-provoking approach. But what she also does... Uh, Anita Diamond here is to retell the meta story. Yeah, when women were menstruating, when women had their period, they were, according to many sources, were they were excluded. They were not within the family. So she's not talking about exclusion. She's talking about special time in the life of the community when women gather together. We know that women who live together, I, I remember it from my military service, normally have their periods together, right? They have their menstruation together. So there was one week a month that women went away and they were in the red tent and they did their own things. And grandmother told the granddaughters their traditions and, and they were, you know, the, 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 the female um, lore and law uh, was transmitted. And this is something that I think we we greatly miss today. And Anita Diamant, as you say, brought it to the fore. And as you say, I completely agree. There's so much going on today with uh, people who write in order to include um, those who were not included. Yeah, which I think brings it back to our notion of everyone standing at Sinai, which of course is that important message from this week's parasha, that to... To assume that everyone was there is to assume that there are multiple perspectives. Um, and, you know, the, the notion of the red tent is interesting because, of course, the women are segregated out. But the segregation in Anita Diamond's reading and perhaps in, you know, reality, what it really was, was it was something that was celebrated. It was something it was it was a, a forum in which women's stories could be told and passed forward. Right. And so, yes, this portion has this funny tension between the inclusion and the exclusion. Right. It says everyone's standing there, but then it says, but also stay away from the women. And in a sense, I guess the task then is to uncover stories that were passed down in a separate setting that then didn't become part of the larger tradition of the Torah, essentially. Right, but you also have to remember that the segregation, as we as we as we understand it, was not necessarily something that was forced upon women. There are some feminist thinkers, I think Adrian Rich, uh, American Jewish thinker, she was maybe the first one to say it, that maybe the laws of distancing women in, in certain time uh, in the month was something that women chose. Women imposed it. First of all, it gives them a lot of a lot of power, right? Because you know, you cannot approach a woman when she's not, when she's in a, in a state of ritual impurity. And she can sort of control if she's going to be, go to the mikveh, yes or no. So obviously there was no mikveh in the, in the times of Genesis, but maybe this was, was a, a thing women said, you know, we need a time 
for ourselves. We need a tent of our own, as it were. If we, you know, as just as Virginia Woolf spoke about a room of her own, they needed a tent of their own. They wanted to be alone for some time. You know, there's something very healthy. You know, doctors, psychologists, they tell us, you know, women together, spending a time with your friend is is a, is a healthy thing for for you physically, mentally, emotionally. So women maybe chose it. So when we talk about segregation, it wasn't necessarily something that was imposed on women. Maybe it was something that women initiated. We don't know, right? We don't know, but maybe. And that within those spaces, then there is the telling of stories and the sharing of traditions and the passing down of tradition. Uh, so if it's okay with you, Rabbi Marks, let's take a short break here. And when we come back, we'll continue this thread and talk about what it has to do with your new book, which is a celebration both of the Jewish calendar and also of voices that need to be brought back into our tradition. Hi, everybody. Let me take this short break as an opportunity to tell you about a couple of Zoom classes we have coming up through La Asok. First of all, next Thursday on February 8th, we're going to be offering a one-time class on reproductive justice in Jewish tradition. So the question of what does Judaism have to say about the right to have or not to have a child, that's being taught by Rabbi Leah Berkowitz, and it's totally free and open to the public. That's next Thursday, February 8th. Later in the month, we also have two more class series coming up. One that's being taught by Rabbi Berkowitz that's called Would the Torah Forgive Your Student Loans? It's about poverty and tzedakah and economic justice in Judaism. And then a class series that I'm teaching, backed by popular request, which is called O Jerusalem, the story of the city and the symbol. So if you're interested in any of those, just come to laasok.org, L-A-A-S-O-K.org, and click on current classes to see those and other upcoming offerings. Looking forward to seeing you in the classroom soon. And now back to my conversation with Rabbi Dahlia Marks. We are back. If I can say a little more about you as we move into this next part of our conversation, uh, Rabbi Dahlia Marks is the Aaron D. Pankin Professor of Liturgy and Midrash at Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem. She also teaches in various academic institutions in Israel and Europe. Uh, she is a 10th generation Jerusalemite, and she is the author and the editor of a number of books, including being lead editor of the new Israeli reform Sidur, which is called Tfilat HaAdam. I just got my copy. I spent time looking through it, and I love it. Um, and her new book is called From Time to Time, Journeys in the Jewish Calendar. And it is an exploration and a celebration of Jewish traditions that can that is organized along the lines of the Jewish year, of the Jewish calendar. So we've been talking about this notion of inclusion and exclusion and how you find the voices that have not necessarily been passed down. Can you tell us a little bit about how that relates to this project? What, where, which voices were you looking for when you were creating from time to time? Right. So when we think about the voices that were not heard, uh, or or many voices, yeah. This is a, there's a beautiful midrashic tradition saying that God spoke, but everyone heard what they had to hear. We're going to read the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments this uh, this Shabbat, but we're going to read them again. 
when we read Parashat Ve'et Hanan in the book of Deuteronomy. And there are slight changes between the versions. And the rabbis were asking, can it be that the Torah doesn't know what God really say? Can there be one version is not correct? How can we understand that? And the answer is, the Holy One, blessed be He, can speak in many voices. Our human limited capacity that we can understand one thing at a time. But God speaks in many voices, in many languages, in many ways. And I, I really like that notion. What, what I try to bring in this book is, is many voices from the Jewish tradition, ancient voices and contemporary voices, voices from the West and voices from the East, all kinds of ethnic group within uh, Judaism, um, all denominations, all streams and all genders with a strong emphasis on women experience. Hmm. So will you tell us a little more about the book? What is the project of From Time to Time? Right. The book is divided by 12 chapters. Each chapter is divided to one of the Hebrew months. We begin with an introduction to the month at the gates of the month. There is a kavanah, which is a meditation that is um, meant for that month. And then we move into uh, at the poem of the month, either a traditional uh, liturgical hymn or, or contemporary text or medieval text, but a text that has to do with the festival. And then we went to Iyunim. Uh, so each each perek, uh, each, each month has several, what we call Iyunim. It's in Hebrew, but we couldn't translate it very well. Iyunim is consideration. So chapters that deal with special aspects of that month. So sometimes it's very easy. So the month of Tishrei, you have the Rosh Hashanah, and you have the Day of Atonement, and you have Sukkot. And, you have, and sometimes it's a, it's a bit of a challenge to look for things. What I try to do is not go for the obvious, not go for what we learn you know, in Hebrew school, kindergarten, even in the university, but to bring uh, new aspects that uh, maybe, maybe we didn't, get to hear a lot. So, for example, the second month, which is called Mar Cheshvan, there is no festivals at all in that month. And, and my kindergarten teacher told me this is why it's called Mar Cheshvan, because Mar is bitter. He's right. very bitter about the fact that there are no festivals in this month. But I actually found really interesting things that happened on that month. For example, um, an ethnic festival that the Ethiopian Jews brought to to Israel. Um, many of us did not did not know of it before they came. It's called the Sigd, and it is celebrated fifty days after Yom Kippur, just like we celebrate Shavuot fifty days after Passover. And um, it is a very interesting festival, which is a renewal of the covenant with God, but also a day that was meant to express the longing and the yearning of the people to Jerusalem. Now think about it, Rabbi Streifer. What happened when these people are in Jerusalem? They are celebrating it in Jerusalem. This The celebration had to be reshuffled, rethought a little bit. And this group of the Ethiopian Jews, we, they, they call themselves Beta Israel, the House of Israel, well, they didn't have a very easy deal when they came to Israel. They, they, their acceptance here was not, not so easy by the chief rabbinate that didn't really believe they were Jews. It wasn't a very rosy path. So today, I think a lot of um, 
non-Ethiopian Israelis uh, take it upon themselves to celebrate this day with the Ethiopian Jews, with the Kehilat Beta Israel, as an act of solidarity. So I brought I brought a, a chapter about that, and then the, the, each chapter ends with a prayer of the month. I didn't say that a prayer of the month, um, and again, in Malcheshvan there is, as I said, no uh, general festivals. So I brought a prayer from uh, this Kehila, the Beta Israel. Their prayers are very different from all other ethnic groups within Judaism. First of all, because it's not in Hebrew. It's in the holy Ethiopian language, which is called Ge'ez. And they don't have a prayer book like uh, like most of us do. It, 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 it's done in a different way. But I, I thought it would be interesting to bring a prayer, to translate it to Hebrew, and to show what is similar and what is different from, from uh, the Hebrew prayer. Obviously, we could not include uh, everything. But um, uh, the publisher, the CCAR, a Central Conference of American Rabbis, created a beautiful study guide. The editor is Audrey Honig, who is a rabbinic student. She was my student when she was in her year in Israel. I always knew she was bright, but I didn't realize how bright she was because she really got it. And she created a program that you can use in your household, in your Hillel group, in your Rosh Chodesh gathering, in your community to to study together and to further think about questions that come out from this book and you can download it from the CCR website. Hmm. What made you decide to use the Jewish calendar as a frame for this journey that you're taking the reader through? I think we take time very seriously. Human beings, you know, we we live our lives through time. And Jews may may do so even more, yeah. Uh, if if I go back to Abraham Joshua Heschel, the, one of the greatest uh, Jewish thinkers of the 20th century, in his book uh, The Sabbath, said uh, throughout the ages people destroyed our houses of prayer. You know, they, we were deported from here to there. We exiled. We we were not always in in terms of space. We were not very safe, but time was always there for us. We Shabbat, he says, is the cathedral in time that even our fiercest enemies could not destroy. So that time really kept us together. If you think about it for 2000 years, when we were dispersed all over the place without uh, internet and, uh, you know, we kept the time together. Shabbat was Shabbat all around. It makes me think about what Ahad Ha'am said that more than Israel has kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept Israel. Mm. That, That our holidays have been this force for holding us together as a as a people exactly and and if you think about it we were created in time that was two weeks ago when we read parashat bo exodus 12 this month and to you is the head of the the first month the first thing that god says to the to the freed slaves when they become a people is you have you have time you have a calendar you have designated times and that's what makes you a people, you know, a slave. The, the, the people who were slaves in Egypt did not control their time. You know, I think about the people in the tunnels right now as we speak. I hope that when you broadcast it, it will not be relevant anymore in a few days. But, you know, they don't have day and night. They don't control their time. Controlling your time is, is what makes you a free person is what makes you a free people. So 
I think talking about time when, when we talk about Judaism is a very, very, very central thing for us. And that's what really keeps us together. It is, I think, the act of a wandering people, in a sense, to build a way of life around time. And I mean, certainly we've always hoped for, prayed for, thought about the return to space, to the land of Israel, to the temple. That's always been part of our prayers and part of our longings. But in reality, you're right. We've been building our way of life around time because time is something portable. You can carry your holidays with you when you go from place to place, and you can share holidays, whether you're Ashkenazi or Sephardi or, you know, Ethiopian or, you know, Jews from India. We share these holidays and they hold us together and we take them with us wherever we go. You're absolutely right. And in that sense, in, in a sense, Zionism and the state of Israel was a remedy for that. Yeah, and Heschel was you know, he was um, criticized a bit that it only talks about the aspect of time and not space. However, uh, what we're experiencing the la in the last uh, few months is that space in and of itself is not always safe. Yeah. And I think a lot of people take extra comfort with the time, right? You know, no matter what, sun will rise, sun will set. You know, it's not Tevya, it's you know, the nature. Uh, Shabbat will always come. The festivals will come. You, you're you going to gather. You're going to have good food. You know, even though things are very difficult, time provide us with, a, with an anchor when we deal with difficult times. And further, I would think, you know, I'm not Israeli. You are. I've lived in Israel a little bit. But it seems to me that one of the things that makes Israel so deeply Jewish, certainly that it is in the land of Israel and exists on in our ancient homeland, but also that Israel's time is Jewish. Living here in North America, the holidays that are celebrated by the world around me are Canada Day and Christmas. But in Israel, the holidays that are celebrated by the world around you are Pesach and Yom Kippur. And so there is... One of the features, it seems to me, of a Jewish society is a society that organizes its time around the Jewish calendar. Right. And I think I never realized what you say. It kind of went very obvious to me. It was I, it was invisible to me until I came to live in the United States for two years and then in Berlin for two years. And then, you know, you go out, you know, you're in the synagogue for Yom Kippur when you have the Kol Nidre and then you go out to the streets and everything is... Normal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I experience that every year because now that I've experienced Yom Kippur in Israel, where, you know, for the sake of our listeners who may not know, Israel essentially shuts down on Yom Kippur. There are not cars in the streets. People are out walking. People are wearing their white shirts. It's, it's quiet in this extraordinary way. And every year, sometime in mid-afternoon on Yom Kippur, I walk outside the synagogue and I realize that, oh, the world's just going on around me. There are people driving, there are people at work. And I go for my walk and I'm kind of struck by the way that we are building a cathedral in time. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that makes Israel different and unique and special. No, but I want to be advocate for, for the world jewelry for a moment, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, for you to create this, you, you have to make an effort, right? You really have to go and get it. It's not the same as here. And I think um, I, I realized when I lived in the States that if you want your children to grow up as Jews, you really have to to pay attention. You know, you really have to work for it. And it, it's very expensive also. And it's 
it's something that you really have to think about. It's not something that just, you know, in the air. And and therefore, you know, uh, no pain, no gain. Sometimes we say, right? And so, the efforts um, can make it even more meaningful, maybe. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And I certainly don't mean to be suggesting that one of those is better than the other. I think that mm-hmm. they are two models of Jewish life in the 21st century, and that there's goodness to each of them. I I grew up in South Louisiana where, you know, there were not very many Jewish people in my community. I mean, part of the time we were in New Orleans, where there is a decent-sized Jewish community, and part of the time I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where there's a very small Jewish community, one or two synagogues. Actually, the two synagogues of Baton Rouge have just merged into one synagogue, and you really have to make an effort to be Jewish. And so that's why there are Jewish camps and there are synagogues and there are youth groups. And my life as a Jew in a small Southern city revolved around Judaism in a really significant way because that was home. Those Jewish moments were home, so to speak, right? And, that, and that, that's true of holidays and it's true of Jewish spaces as well, like synagogue and camp. So I do think that our holidays and our the moments of time that you're describing in this book have the potential to be a home for us, where we come together with people who share our values, we come together to create community and to create these, what Heschel calls these cathedrals in time, no matter where we live. And I think that's true on a large scale in a society like Israel, but it certainly is also true in a very different way in a community where you're surrounded by a majority non-Jewish culture. Exactly. And that's why, you know, I was asked, it, 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 this book is so much about the Israeli experience. Why do you want it translated? It was translated first to German and then to Spanish and only then to English. Mm-hmm. Now we're working on the Catalan of all languages. Fancy that. Wow. <laughs> I think this is something that we all share together uh, from different perspectives. And what I try to say, what you know, if I sum the book in, in, um, you know, in one line is... There is room for everybody. You know, in Israel, I don't know if, I don't, I don't think in, in North America it's the same, but in Israel we have now the discourse of identities. Everyone clings to their identity, to their ethnic group, you know, and if you are part of a different group than me, then you are the enemy, right? And I have to defeat you. In a lot of places, this is the kind of conversation we have right now in Israel. I find it terrible. In some ways, it's not it's it's top down. It's not bottom up. Some some major politicians do it for their own because of their own reason, you know, to to kind of create chaos and and hate within different groups in the Israeli society. And and my aim was to say, friends, there are many different customs, there are many different stories, and all of them are are beautiful, and and all of them valid. And we let, let's learn and let's see what we can take from each other. I just want to put a little star on what I just said. Not all of them are beautiful. I was really committed to bring the many stories, right? But I didn't include everything. It doesn't it doesn't mean that everything goes. I didn't include sexist voices. I didn't include racist voices, chauvinist voices. I didn't include them. But I did make uh, major efforts to include many voices in this in this book. It's really a wonderful compilation, and you know I've gotten a chance to read parts of it, and it's filled with essays and poems and traditions and and rituals. 
This is not a novel, right? I don't necessarily expect people to read it cover to cover. Well, some do, but I don't expect them to do it. What I hear, and I, I get for, on a daily basis, I get uh, notices from people. They put it near their Shabbat table. They put it in their teaching teacher's uh, desk. They put it near their bed and they read the chapter of the month or they read before Chagim or before a staff meeting. They read the meditation, the Kavanah. So it's, it's, it's something that is meant to be read uh, not as one piece, uh, but, but to read it... Uh, when time calls for it, in a way, yeah. Yeah, and I think it really does speak to the need that many of us have to connect with whatever's happening on the Jewish calendar right now, right around our Shabbat table or before bed, or maybe you're just reaching for a prayer. And Judaism gives us this beautiful tool of the Jewish calendar, not just the holidays, but the months of the year, the seasons of the year that can be a frame to our um, to our Jewish lives. Can I say something else? The book is dedicated to the loving memory of a rabbi, Aaron Dipenkin, who was the president of Hebrew Union College, and he was taken tragically from us uh, almost six years ago. And as you mentioned before, I'm the Aaron Dipenkin professor in Jerusalem. His wife, Lisa, Lisa Messenger, um, enabled the publication of the book in English, and we dedicated it to the memory of our teacher, Rabbi Aaron Penkin. What we didn't know then is that this book will carry the memory of two great presidents of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. The second one um, is my teacher and our teacher, Rabbi David Ellenson, who was who passed away very recently. He wrote the introduction to this book, and I owe him basically everything. I am <laughs> as a liturgist. He was my first liturgy professor, and he was a very, very important present person in my life uh, for uh, many decades now. And so I feel I feel a lot of sadness, but I also feel a privilege to be able to to light a small candle for the memory of these two great individuals. Thank you for that. Rabbi Ellenson ordained me in two thousand seven, and one of the things that I know that he believed was that the liturgy has the ability to connect us back to tradition and also to continue to speak to us today. So I think in many ways, this book is an expression of what I know that he taught both of us and what he taught the Jewish world. And I love the idea that we're continuing to seek voices in our tradition, that we're continuing to write new prayers and to, um, to share our traditions and our prayers and our holidays and our celebrations of Jewish time with each other. Can we finish by reading something from the book? We are in the month of Shvat and we are approaching the 30th of Shvat, uh, which is uh, in, in Israel, the family day. This is a day that celebrates families. And I had an Iyun, that is a chapter about families, how we envision families, what families were like and what families are, how, how should we understand families and their function in their lives and what they can be in our lives. And we ended with prayers for families, for family members that we can say, and I know that in, in many places they are actually recited on this, on this day. Yeah, so let me read. This is the opening part of a series of prayers written by Rabbi Chaya Rowan Baker to be recited on the 30th of Shvat, which is Family Day. And it says, My God, 
I offer thanks to you for your great kindness you have bestowed upon me, for my family members who are always with me. Please instill among us friendship, mutual responsibility, health, and peace. Instruct me in your ways, and may we follow your paths, and may this verse be true in our lives. Matovu ohalecha Yaakov, mishkenotecha Yisrael. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. And then, and then you have special prayers for special different family members, uh, biological family members, and maybe not biological family members. Yes. Beautiful. Um, it's such a gift to be able to read words of prayer that others have written and to be able to lift up the voices that are not as often lifted up in our prayer books or in our traditional compilations. So um, Rabbi Dahlia Marks, I want to thank you for spending some time with me today and for this extraordinary volume uh, from time to time journeys in the Jewish calendar. And um, I'm great. I'm grateful for your time, for your time and for your wisdom today. No, I'm grateful for yours and for your friendship. Thank you so much. Seven Minute Torah is a production of La Asok, sacred texts, modern meaning. If you enjoyed this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7minutetorah. For more information about upcoming learning opportunities, go to laasoka.org, L-A-A-S-O-K dot org. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Thanks for listening.